Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 will be just giving some comment on the first couple of verses and then uh, verses 12 and 13, but we'll read verses 1 through 13, and then we'll read the catechism question in the back of the red hymnal, I believe it should be page 880 or so, 877. 877-105, Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Give your attention once again to the reading of God's holy word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Our sermon text. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Question 105. Let's read the answer together for our catechism lesson tonight. Question 105, what do we pray for in the fifth petition? In the fifth petition, which is, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we pray that God, for Christ's sake, would freely pardon all our sins, which we are the rather encouraged to ask, because by His grace we are enabled from the heart to forgive others. Beloved congregation, I was encouraged, uh, I was intrigued this week, that is, as I was considering that phrase, encouraged to ask, kind of an interesting thing that it says there in, in answer. 
105. We're encouraged to ask. There's a sense in which we pray this prayer in confidence. There's kind of two ways that you could, you could take that, and I think both of them are, are legitimate, and they can even work sort of simultaneously and together. We're, we're encouraged to ask this petition, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, as it says, because God's grace has enabled us. And so, uh, God's grace works in our hearts, enlivening us to the realities of, of the gospel, enlivening us to uh, the, the wonders of uh, not only God's forgiveness, but then our opportunity to, to forgive others. And so out of that life that God creates in us through the gospel and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're encouraged to ask because God has given us new desires, um, new ways of thinking, a new mindset. Another way that it, that it works, which is a slight nuance, is that we are encouraged to ask God, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors because we have seen His work in us. As we look at our lives and perhaps someone has uh, offended us and, and done something against us, and, and yet we have seen the, 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 the glory and the blessing of forgiving that person. We've known something of, of the blessing of extending forgiveness to others. There is a sense in which we, we look at our lives and we say, you know, apart from God's grace, I probably would not have done that. There would, probably would have been a time in my life where I would not have uh, sought to be reconciled to someone, where I would not have been willing to extend that forgiveness. And that fills us with confidence as well. As we, as we go to God, forgive us our debts as, as we forgive our debtors. I, I know that you have created this new life in me. Thus, I'm more pleased and joy-filled to commune with you. I also look at my life and understand that I have forgiven in times of my life where I, I maybe would not have before expected to do that. And so I, I am encouraged to ask. We see the evidence of God's work in our lives and, and in our hearts. And that is what this passage in Colossians 3 puts before us. Very famous passage regarding the Christian life. An obedient Christian life is impossible without first knowing redemption without first uh, being plunged into the death and the life of, of Christ. But knowing that redemption, we are then eager to love and forgive people in the way that God has loved and forgiven us. So we come to this text and we're reminded first that we are redeemed people. We are redeemed people. Verse 12 looks back by using the word therefore. Here in our translation it says put on then, but it's Greek word un, so kind of looking forward as we look back because of this. Now this, what does the previous passage assert? Well, it asserts that only through redemption, only through the life of, of Christ can we live an obedient Christian life. Life in Christ is foundational to all that, all that we do, uh, we, we begin with that reality. Christ is all and in all, as it says there close to our passage. And in verse 1, obviously, is, is where that whole thread begins. If then you have been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above. So there's this, this heavenly picture of salvation and the life that we have in Christ is is a heavenly reality. 
And perhaps the most blessed reality of, of redemption is the fact that it is heavenly and that we can know that our Savior is in heaven. In Ephesians, it says we are seated with him in those heavenly places. And this redemption is the, the qualifier for, for the obedient Christian life, the, the life that we live that is pleasing unto God, as Colossians 1 verse 10 talks about. We might bear fruit pleasing unto God in, in, in every good work. So the, the obedient Christian life is for the redeemed only. It's for the forgiven only. It's for the, the justified only. Those who are united with Christ. It's those who possess this resurrection life and, and the power of Christ in their hearts through, through the Holy Spirit. Not only are we alive to the things of heaven and the life and the realities of heaven, but we are dead to the things of the flesh. Colossians chapter 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's a dual picture of this life. It's not just that we are alive in Christ, but that we are, we are dead to ourselves. And we are dead to ourselves in, in the sense that all the things that uh, animates our sinful nature, all the things that animate that sinful flesh that we inherited from Adam, we are to die to those things, to put to death what is earthly in us. We see how the subjective appropriation of the saving benefits of Christ are prior to the calling to live this life. It's for the redeemed, it's for those in Christ, for those who are dead to self. To seek to live this life apart from redemption, to, to come to the commandments of the Bible and to seek to live them apart from the life that we have in Jesus Christ, it will always fail. That's called moralism, or it's called legalism, and it never will work. In the story Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is trying to find his way to the place of deliverance, just through the narrow gate. He gets directed, there's kind of a, a misdirection in the story, he gets directed to the house of, of Mr. Legality, being told that this is an easier way to, to remove his burden, but he finds as he tries to make his way to the house that the, the hill, the climb is much too steep. It's much too, too difficult for him. He becomes lost and he despairs until evangelist comes and reminds him of the gospel. You need to go through the narrow gate. You need to go to the place of deliverance to have your burden removed. See, that's the way with legalism, with moralism. On its surface, it seems like we, we should be able to, and we convince ourselves that, that we'll be able to achieve the life that the Bible commands of us. But the way is much too deep. We need to be reminded again and again and again, what is the power, what is the strength, what is the energy for the obedient Christian life? It, it comes from heaven. It comes by relying upon Christ. It comes by feeding on Him and receiving God's grace his word and, and his spirit. Paul reasserts this truth as we come to verse 12. We might expand verse 12 to say something like this. Therefore, as the chosen people of God, as a people consecrated to his service and specially endowed with his, life, with his love, array yourselves in all of these things. That's the way Lightfoot, a very, very famous uh, New Testament scholar, translates it. I'll say it again. Therefore, as the chosen people of God, as a people consecrated to his service and specially endowed with his love, array yourselves in. You see how Paul always is seemingly always careful 
to lead us up into these commandments, lead us up into the kinds of the ways He wants us to live. Therefore, since you are God's chosen people, so we're already reaching all the way back into eternity past, the decrees of God. Since God has chosen you, and since not only He has chosen you, but since He has consecrated you, and since He has endowed you with His love, you see, we go into the fight with all of these tools, all of these graces, all of these blessings. The election of God, the, the consecration that we have through Christ, through, through baptism and through faith and, and, and through the washing that comes through His blood. Especially endowed with the love of God, we then come to all of these things. We begin where? With, with the gospel. Otherwise, we're lost and on the side of a mountain that, that we cannot climb. At the same time, at the same time, we don't find all of these commandments as sort of empty, bare things. We don't ignore them. We, say, we don't say, oh, well, it's, it's grace, it's Christ, it's faith, it's nothing else. No, it's, it's grace, it's Christ, it's faith, so that we may do the very things which, which God commands us to do. One commentator puts it this way, it is folly for one to presume that he is loved of God or that he loves God who neglects to put on ornaments of virtue. For God always adorns those whom he loves by infusing virtues and gifts, and they who love God worship him and honor him by the exercise of virtue. Almost like when you go and you get a Christmas tree, you, you bring it back home, and what do you do? You put the, the ornaments on, you put the lights, and you put it all on there. You don't bring it home and just sort of leave it there. God does not save his people without also adorning them with all of these virtues that bring glory to His name. We are redeemed people. Those who seek to live this life are redeemed people. Not only are we redeemed people, but we are then Christ-like people. We are Christ-like people. The, the obedient Christian life that is placed before us, as we see, is, is uh, often just very simply the life that Jesus laid out for us, the life that we saw Him live, right? We don't arrive at that place first and say, I'm going to try with all of my, my might to live like Christ. We have to begin where we began, with redemption, and then with the life that we have, then God creates in us those virtues in order to live just like Jesus. Since you are chosen of God, since you are consecrated, since you are specially endowed with His love, array yourselves in or put on compassionate hearts. What is a compassionate heart? Well, it's, it's God's heart, as shown in Christ, that we would not perish in our sin. Compassion is an, an affection of feeling the woe of another. Feeling the woe of another. It's, it's a, a Hebraic type of expression that kind of gets right down into the, the deep-rooted feeling in, in the pit of your stomach. Kind of a giving of yourself to have the inner self tied uh, to the good of another. An illustration of this might be, my young moms are going to have to help me out with this one. And it, it might be when a, a parent has little children running around the house and uh, when you've got all these little kids kind of toddling around and haven't quite learned the lesson to always watch where you're going and the, the corners of cabinets and, and counters and all of these treacherous things in suburban homes that we have, right? 
And so all your kids are learning to walk and run, and, and there are all these moments for young moms or young parents in general. Dads, don't, dads maybe don't feel this way, I don't know. Uh, but you see that they're headed for something, they're going to bang their head into something. And moms, what do you feel? You literally feel pain, don't you? There's these pains that shoot through your body before the child runs into that thing uh, that it's because you, you have compassion in your heart for your child, and you don't want them to, to hurt themselves, and you, you feel this pain shoot through you. That's something like the compassionate heart. There's a feeling of pain, a giving of the self that we are to have towards others. God has this compassion, this compassion for sinners, this desire to help and to save. But not only is there compassion, but there's kindness. God does not just have this love for sinners, but He does something about it, shown in acts of kindness. He helps in sending His Son and, and Spirit. So, compassion is then linked to kindness. It's the outward expression of the, of the inward feeling. Clothe yourselves with, with compassionate hearts and, and kindness. Have a, an emotion in, in, within you that identifies with the struggles of other people and, and actually care about them and show that you care about them in acts of kindness. Next, we are to array ourselves in in humility. It was especially Jesus who did not exploit others for his own personal gain. We we are to uh, maintain humility in all of our spiritual endeavors. Why? Because we know that whatever we have, it's not because of us. It's not because of anything that we have done. It's because of God by His grace. As the Apostle Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. If Christ, as the God-man, can be humble, who did not insist on his rights, who did not exploit, use his position to exploit others, then we must be humble as well. Humility is then, in, in many ways, linked to meekness, and you see a lot of the overlap in many of these virtues. But uh, meekness is a virtue which renders a man uh, manageable in interacting with others. What I mean by that is, is this. It's the, it's the virtue that douses out your vengeance. When someone wrongs you, if you have the humility to recognize that no one's perfect and you certainly are not perfect, then that can be linked to, to the, the meekness that is essentially wanting to be patient with others, that you don't become exasperated with other people and the faults of other people. It moderates your passion. It restrains unjust reactions and tempers and softens how you deal with other people. See, we need constant correction, don't we? But who does not become exasperated towards us? Our Heavenly Father. He does... Uh, not become exasperated, and so we are to be the same towards others. Humility and meekness go together in many ways, and then patience is also linked linked to that as well. God is long-suffering and patient with us when we always fall short. Another child of humility, you might say, patience, right? We, we, 
The person who would say, well, how could anyone wrong me? I would never do that to them. So often we kid ourselves and convince ourselves that we are not as sinful as we really are. But we are called to be Christ-like people, to feel for others, to, to do for others, to be humble and meek and patient towards others. Begin with redemption. Because of redemption and the love that God has shed upon us, we become Christ-like people and then uh, leading then to this last point and really the, the central point that we're considering tonight. We are to be then forbearing and forgiving people. Forbearing and, and forgiving people. Those are really, these are really the outward expressions of all of these virtues. So first we are called to bear with one another in verse 13. For, forbearance is the response of the believer who does not rise up in feelings or actions of vengeance when they are wronged. Our remaining corruption always brings that about in our hearts, right? Immediately when, when someone wrongs us, what is it that we want to do? We want to get back at them exactly the way that they have wronged us. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The forbearance requires us to recognize that those around us are not perfect. You have to be able uh, to admit that you are not perfect, neither are the people around you. Our desire for vengeance, what wells up in our hearts when we are wrong, wronged, is often rooted in a false notion that we should expect to never be wronged. Uh, we, we get this false notion that we should expect that no one will ever wrong us. But we know that that is not the case when you consider it biblically. If you are to interact with others, if you are to have a relationship with others, if you are to be married, then you know that you will often encounter the faults of others. So we don't accept the faults of others, which means we would not care for their holiness, but we bear with their faults, loving them and hoping the best for them. Two things to think about with forbearance. Forbearance is really the willingness to forgive tomorrow. It's understanding that your spouse, your family members, your friends, people in your congregation, people at your workplace, they will wrong you at some time, at some point. And it's a willingness to forgive tomorrow. You don't know what that wrong might be, but there's an openness and a willingness to forgive. That's forbearance. Forbearance is prized by those who are tr truly wise. And, and a couple of things to, to consider. In forbearing, if you are a forbearing person, you conquer yourself. It's a way that you conquer the, the passions and the sinful desires within you. You bind the furious monster of revenge that dwells within all of our hearts. Proverbs 16, verse 32 says this, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. It's a conquest of yourself and your heart. In forbearing, you, you conquer yourself. You conquer that desire you have for vengeance by God's grace. By God's grace and forbearing, we also conquer the evil and the malice of our enemies or those who wrong us. Romans 12, 
Uh, Verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil uh, with good. We see King David do this a couple times. Not yet King David, but David does this a couple times as it relates to, to King Saul. Remember the time that David catches Saul in, in the cave, and uh, his men convince him, this is your opportunity, this is, when you, this is when you take Saul, take him out so that you can be king. David says, I'm not going to do that, but uh, I'll cut off a piece of his robe, and then he feels badly even about that. Uh, I cannot believe that I would raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. We read in verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking, uh, uh, or Sorry, to go back. So he, he feels bad about rising, raising his hand against the Lord's anointed. It says, so David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. And later David shows himself to Saul and says, see, this is the opportunity that I had. I did not take that opportunity. And Saul is basically undone. He is humbled in the presence of, of David. As soon as David finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So God calls us to to bear with others, to be willing to forgive tomorrow those wrongs that you have not yet encountered. We know that God has promised to forgive us, that we are forgiven of sins past and present and future. We know that our covenant God relates to us in this covenant of grace where we can be confident that our sins are wiped away. But we're also commanded to forgive, and that's more kind of explicitly encountering the sins uh, of, of, of others that are done against us. We are to, to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. So how has God forgiven us? Well, you might describe it in so many different ways. But if we are to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us, here are a couple of things to keep in mind. We are to forgive abundantly and totally because that is how the Lord has forgiven us. Isaiah 59, our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us for our our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Jeremiah 3, let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even to this day we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. We, We haven't obeyed him ever. We have always been against our God, they say in Jeremiah. But how has God dealt with us? He's dealt with us in abundant forgiveness. We read in Psalm 130, In Him there is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. 
Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He forgives us abundantly and totally. God does not deal with us according to our sins, which is the way that we in our flesh want to deal with those who sin against us. I will deal with this person the way that they have dealt with me. They have sinned against me, thus I will repay it. But God has forgiven us abundantly. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has forgiven us joyfully. We are to take great joy in bestowing forgiveness upon others. Micah chapter 7. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He delights in mercy. He delights in covenant faithfulness. The Lord your God is in your midst, Zephaniah chapter 3. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. He rejoices over those whom he saves. Luke 15. We read uh, the shepherd who goes and finds the lost sheep. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. That is the way that our God deals with us joyfully, abundantly, joyfully, repeatedly. God forgives us repeatedly. Peter came up to Jesus and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but 70 times seven. The kingdom of heaven is known in forgiveness. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. But don't forget this, that your forgiveness is never the same as God's forgiveness. Those who sin against God sin against a holy, majestic creator. God is perfectly justified in sending people to condemnation for the slightest sin. God forgives as one who would sit as judge rightly And God calls us to extend forgiveness to those who are our equals. We do not sit in judgment over other people the way that God sits in judgment over us. Wilhelmus Brockle says this, Forgiveness occurs between equals who, even though they have been wronged, may not punish. Yes, no one is permitted to be wrathful toward the offender, allow the inclination to arise in the heart, nor have a grudge against hate or have an aversion towards him. See, we forgive as equals. God forgives as the just and eternal judge. So we are always brought back to the place in our endeavors to be forgiving as God has forgiven us. We're always brought back to the place where we stand in awe of God's grace. That no matter how forgiving we are, it's never going to be exactly the way that God forgives. And it's never going to be the same kind of forgiveness that he has already extended to us. And thus we live always in awe of his forgiveness. Thankful and grateful for what he has shown to us. So we rejoice in the wonder of his forgiveness 
always that though God had every right to send us to eternal condemnation, something that we never have relative to other people, though God had every right to send us to eternal condemnation, He delights to show mercy. And He forgives us abundantly, totally, joyfully, and repeatedly in Christ. So though we are never in that position, we nevertheless are called to forgive abundantly, joyfully, repeatedly. And we do so first because of the life of Christ in us, which makes us joyful to forgive. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you and praise you for your love and mercy and grace. Father, bless us. Grant us your grace and your spirit that we may live according to these commands. Not that we may achieve a righteousness before you, but because you have given us that righteousness in Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would give us strength against temptation, against the flesh this week, that we may live lives which are pleasing unto you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, sing number 22 in the Psalter hymnal, number 22. When in